When the gospel first arrived in Corinth, it came to a culture that had next to nothing in the way of a biblical worldview. The vast majority there had no knowledge of the true God or his scriptures, and this meant that the young Corinthian church had a lot of unlearning to do when it came to things like sex, status, marriage, worship, and community. So as we've seen, much of Paul's letter so far has been devoted to addressing these topics. And now he will turn his attention to idols. Corinth, like any other Gentile city of the time, was full of pagan temples. And idol worship was closely tied to every other aspect of culture, be it social gatherings, occupations, or even the food people ate. So the question the Corinthians faced was, how do I go about my everyday life when that life is constantly intersecting with reminders of my old pagan ways? Everyday life. At part, it can be really, really difficult. We find great joy in celebrating someone when they give their life to Jesus Christ. When they come to the understanding that my life um, for myself, dedicated to myself, is somehow not what God ultimately desires or intends. Um, I recognize that I am a sinner and I need God's grace, and God's grace then gives me a new life. And that new life that I now have, I'm free to enjoy this new life that he has given me. And because of the forgiveness of my sins and because of this new understanding that I have of the world around me, to be Christian is to look at the world in a different way, to look at it truthfully for what it really is. All these Corinthian people have a new way of looking at the world, a new life that they have, new freedoms in Jesus Christ. And they're saying, so what does this look like in everyday life? And, and just like us, they sometimes get it right, and they sometimes get it wrong. And when you and I usually get it wrong, it, it, revolves, it revolves around the idea that somehow the Christian life that I now experience, that I now enjoy, is intended for me to become all that I am supposed to be. This kind of an individual pursuit of perfection where we come to church and we read our Bibles and we commit ourselves to do better the next day. And then we believe that somehow that those that are most closely attached to us will also be ones who will experience the goodness of this new life that we now have together. And that's really not the way the Bible describes this new life that we have. The Bible does not describe our lives as independent <laughs> owned and operated franchises under this new parent corporation called Jesus. In fact, what it actually says is that we are a family, that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ, that some of you are my father and others are like a mother to me. And, and therefore, we have to do what families have to do, which is learn to live with each other. That's tough. This past Thursday, I had an opportunity to be a part of a wedding celebration for a young couple from Stillwater that decided to stand in front of friends and family and make a very bold statement, I will love you until I die. I will be faithful to you until I die. It's kind of weird that at a wedding you would have all this death kind of language, but marriage, I guess, is that valuable, is that important. And I love looking at young people when they're really excited about getting married because they have no idea what they're getting into. 
Well, they have some idea. But until you die, that's a long time. And, and there is, in any kind of relationship, there is this friction. And that friction creates frustration. And that frustration makes us wonder. I, I don't know if I'm as interested in this. Indeed, one of our major struggles that we're seeing right now in a culture is what happens when you tell people who feel like they are an individually owned and operated franchise to partner with someone else, it's tough. In an article not not that long ago was deeply convicting to me about my own life and my own thoughts that many of us in this room who even claim to be followers of Jesus Christ are probably in some way very firmly entrenched in the idea that we are individual careerists trying to make the most of our lives, pursuing our own happiness. And then marriage is one of those things where we do our best to try to find an agreement as two individuals pursue what they really want. So imagine a whole group of people coming together. How do we all just get along? And not just get along, but how do we live as family? How do we live in light of the gospel? And so that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is asking these new brothers and sisters in Christ to look around and to recognize their brother and sister, to look at this new relationship and say, there's more about my life than coming to church and going to a Bible study. There's something more than just a sticker on the back of my car that says, I go to Sunnybrook. There's so much more than that. There is something that even allows you and I on a regular basis to be involved in friction without frustration. Or at least there might be enough frustration, but, but neither of us are going anywhere, right? Like we're in this. Like till death do us part. Or maybe better yet, till death until we're truly united. See, this is what the Apostle Paul is, is forcing is is uh, the issue. He's, he's bringing it to the table and saying, like, sometimes you, you, you believers, um, and you're all different, which is hard for us to admit. We live in this culture where to admit any kind of difference somehow just seems prejudicial, and it seems arrogant, it seems presumptuous. But one of the greatest lessons that the Bible will actually teach us is that there are, in this room right now, there are those of us that are weaker and there are those of us that are stronger. And we need to admit that, honestly. We need to come to terms with that fact. Because if not, then in the end, we, we, we lose any ability to pursue the truth and to submit ourselves to the truth when we live in this mushy, mushy, wishy-washy look at life where, no, it's just different degrees of that. Oh, it's just different kinds of that. I know what you think about me. I know that you look at me and you go, Jim Johnson and Ricky Fowler, they are both really good golfers in just different kinds of ways. Like, for example, if you want a golfer to go out onto a golf course and to, like, hit every shot straight down the middle, and, and, and literally, occasionally two-putt, but most time, if you got a good chip, one-putt it in. Like, if you're looking for that kind of good golfer, well, then that'd be Ricky Fowler. But if you want a guy to go out to a golf course and have a good time, if you want a guy to go out to a golf course and you have no idea where that ball is about to go, 
I can't wait to see where Jim's going to hit this next one, right? I'm, I'm a lefty, like Phil and, 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 and Mike, and I'm a lefty, and it's a hooking and slicing. I draw on a fade. I have no idea what you're talking about. Everything is hook or slice. And, and honestly, I, I just, I'm deeply offended that you might say that Ricky is a better golfer than me, so why don't we just say we're both really, really good golfers in different ways, See, we, we almost, we know that there's something wrong with that. We know that there's something broken with that. And I think one of the best things that we just need to admit is know that there are weaker and stronger. There is in this room, not just theoretically, but there is in this room those who are mature and those who are not mature. Not just different kinds. He's the mature kind that's really immature. What? What do you mean he's the kind of mature that's just really, really immature? What does that even mean? And the body of Christ has to be a place where not only we are able to speak the truth to one another, but we dare because of the grace of God, because of God's love for us. We dare admit it to ourselves. And it's okay for me to admit There are some areas in my life I need to grow up. There are some ideas that I have I need to change. There are some behaviors that I need to confess and that I need to, under the power of the Holy Spirit, surrender to him. I'm weaker in that way. Not a different kind of strong. I'm weaker. There's something that we care a lot about here at Sunnybrook, and it's a statement that we developed a number of years ago, and we say it all the time. That one of our primary goals and objectives, what causes staff and elders, and I would even say our church leaders that are really involved in in making sure that we are faithful to God and engaging our community, is the statement that goes like this. It is our desire to help everyone understand their current spiritual condition and take responsibility, not complete responsibility, no, that would be God's, but take their responsibility for their spiritual growth that they would know where they stand and that they would know intently, intentionally, they would know passionately what areas of their life they need to go and what areas of their life they need to be involved better in biblical community and what areas of their life they need to grow in their understanding of and obedience to Jesus. So sermons like this aren't just about, hey, here's a couple of things you need to know and three things you need to do. Now, the toughest thing about texts like 1 Corinthians 8 just kind of stop and go, so which one of these two are you? Are you weaker or are you stronger? Are you somebody that really has to wrestle with some of these things, that struggles with the freedoms in Christ that we actually have, that always wants to kind of walk the line? Is that you? Are you somebody that really does, in a rather deep and profound way, understand the way the world is according to God? And do you know that there really is no, like, just magic man behind that curtain. There's, there's, no, there's no magic in the world. There's just a God that is over it all. And a lot of the super, superstition that exists in our, in our way of thinking about life and even in our understanding of God has really grown up. And now we realize that, uh, that God has a plan and that God has a purpose. And therefore, we have some freedoms. Like, do you know which one you are? It's interesting because when I look at this text, I sometimes fail to recognize that there was a time when this text was read for the very first time to the people of Corinth. 
Hey, I just got it right here from the Apostle Paul himself. Are you ready? I want to read it to you. And you start reading. And Paul had no problem talking about like real people in real situations. And so as this letter is being read, there are people going, did he just call me weak? Think about it. Did he just, did he just say my view was wrong? Uh-huh. Did he just challenge me to go beyond what I know and to love and be patient and kind no matter what? Did he just confront just the hardness of my heart towards my brother and sister? Uh Uh-huh, he did. And that's what Paul does. Paul gives us this, this word, the spirit gives to Paul, gives to us this word that causes us to say, I need to get a better understanding of who I am. And then I gotta figure out, how do I live this out in everyday life? Let's take a look at verse one. 1 Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. The Apostle Paul has no problem going, hey, there are some things that we need to know, and there are some things that we know, so let's build off of what we know. Paul's a no guy. Paul says a number of times in his, in his letters, I do not want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware of the truth. Paul is a knowledge guy. Verse, verse one. Now concerning food offered to idols, which was a conversation that they'd had many times, food that is offered to idols... He says, we all know, or sorry, we know that, and then in quotes, that's the best way for us to go. It appears that Paul is quoting something that they're saying. Paul is drawing into a perceived idea or a perceived attitude that the people have, and that is this, that all of us possess knowledge. All of us are aware of the truth. All of us know exactly what is going on. But then the apostle Paul says, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, the Apostle Paul might, might love knowledge and might have a great understanding and appreciation and a love for us all building our lives on that which is true, that which we can know. But the Apostle Paul comes along and says, but that's not the whole story. The whole story is not just knowing this new life or this new reality that you have, but then asking, so then what are the implications of this new knowledge that I have? It's one thing to know that you have in your hands the cure to the illness that everyone around you is suffering from. It's another thing to share that cure with everyone around you. And the Apostle Paul is wanting them to realize that knowledge as wonderful and as helpful and as beneficial as it can be also has a tendency to allow us to become very proud or arrogant. It can actually distance us, those who have knowledge and those who don't have knowledge, those who know better and those who don't know better. And this divides us in every area of life, does it not? As you know, Paul actually sees this same division happening in the church. There are those of us that know this about food, that know this about meat that has been offered to idols. And the apostle Paul is really saying, Just make sure that as you know and as you grow in your understanding and as you grow in your knowledge, make sure that you do not forget the danger of knowledge and the importance of love. The danger of knowledge and the importance of love. He says in verse two, because if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If someone in their mind is just so impressed or is so... um, pleased with themselves 
In terms of everything that they know, actually there's something that they're failing to understand. And in the same way that he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, he has that same strong contrasting word here. If everybody thinks they know, man, they don't know. But, verse three, if anyone loves God, they are known by God. That word there really is, accentuates this. They are known by God, that they are, God, God is pleased by them. See, it's not, it's not what you know that differentiates us from the world. It's how we live out ultimately what we know. And see, that's the gospel. That's the heart transformative change. That's why the church is not just an exercise in information proclamation. But church is family. Church is this organization that recognizes there are relational components. That there's something more than just a test at the end. That is why to fundamentally believe that your salvation is based upon you understanding everything in the right way fails to understand the depth of what God has in store for us. Now, hear me, knowledge is always a part of it. But there is, there is a limit to knowledge. See, it's not just that God knows all, but it's that God knows all and loves so profoundly. That God cares enough for his creation that he would sacrifice himself. And I know some people go, yeah, I know that. Well, I, I don't think you do really know that unless you are so moved by it that you understand there is some kind of transformation that happens within us as we reflect on not just what God has done, but what God has done and how that now moves me to move in a similar way. This is what the Apostle Paul is driving at. We know that. Apostle Paul has no problem going, listen, let's base how we live and how we operate on reality. He continues on in verse four, that there is no God but one. So I think it's important for us to realize the Apostle Paul is still in the process of teaching, that it's not teaching versus love. It's not knowledge versus love. These aren't opposites. It's not how do I balance love and truth. No, that's not what he's saying. He's how do I understand that, they, that even that, that love versus truth dichotomy is actually wrong-minded in itself. It somehow sets us pursuing the wrong thing. The Apostle Paul says, there is no God but one. This is that truth, that knowledge that he wants us to build it upon. Verse four, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, so here's some knowledge Paul is going, we know that an idol has no existence and that there is no God but one. This is something that we know. There's really no debate. That idol worship that's happening over there, who are they talking to? Answer, no one. That ceremony that they just did where they sacrificed that goat to that God, who did they really offer that to? And Paul knows. We all know the answer is what? No one. See, it really cuts against a lot of the relativistic thinking that we have. Every religion is its own little, no, Paul argues from this text and many others that some religions are just wrong, meaning they don't match up with reality. They have like a reality problem. 
that in the end, the people that are offering these animals to these gods are doing nothing. There are no gods there. That is the message of the Old Testament. When the prophets would say, there are no gods there. What you are trusting on, what you're trusting in, there isn't really anything there. Therefore, you need to follow the one God who is truly there, and his name is Yahweh. And the Apostle Paul says, so here are some things that we know. There is no God but one. For although, he says in verse 5, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many so-called gods and many so-called lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So this is the reality. To understand this is part of the process of what it means to be a Christian, to recognize that what we are doing here is not just our, our way of expressing our, um, our inner spirituality. To even use the phrase religious is honestly can be just a kind of a generic term. I recognize there's something in the world that is more than just the physical. That's what it means to be religious. Yes, I am a religious person. But Paul would argue, like, there are religions that are not based in reality. Nothing really eternally happened in that ceremony. And yet the worship that happened here today, the Bible teaches, went up to the one true God. Paul says we all know that. See, some of her going, okay, yeah, this is exactly what I was saying. That's why we can go down and we can eat that food. That's why we can go down and we can be a part of those celebrations because we know it's not real. Now, one of the pieces of this puzzle that is just always important for us to know why this text can sound so strange is that when I say to you, hey, let's go get some steaks, we're either going to a restaurant where those steaks have already been purchased somewhere or we're going to a store and that store is owned by a company, and that company really doesn't have any kind of specific religious affiliation. We just went down to the store, and we bought some meat, and we're cooking it on our grill. That's kind of how it works. That's not true in this world. If you think about it, where would you buy meat? Well, in the ancient world, you buy meat where animals have been killed. Where are animals being killed on a regular basis? Well, actually, down at the different temples. So a family, didn't matter what their religious background was, doesn't matter what God they are worshiping, would bring their animal, the animal would come, the priest would take that animal, the priest would bless that animal, the priest would then offer part of that animal up to the God that they want to worship, and then the rest of that animal would be taken to the marketplace and it would be sold for the benefit of that temple. They would also have this very important religious festival celebrating this God that they love and that they worship. And, and, and scholars don't know exactly if what Paul is arguing over here is whether or not you can go to the marketplace and buy that meat and take it home, that meat that had been dedicated to, a foreign, to, a, to another God. Can we buy that and take that home? But most actually believe that what's really happening here is that there are a lot of Christians going, I think we can go back and still go to those cultic celebrations. We know they're not anything. Like, I, I know they're, they're playing secular music, but I don't think that's a problem. I, I think that we can go and we can still be a part of that. And there are others going, I don't think we can. And, and by the way, for the record, um, a lot of us think, wow, this just sounds so bizarre. I'm so glad that, that we don't have to wrestle with this anymore. Like, I'm so glad that the world has grown up. Well, let me tell you, not that long ago, me and some brothers were in um, uh, a part of the world, and we were having, and sitting in a Sunday school class, and in the middle of the Sunday school class, this rather interesting debate 
starts up on whether or not they can eat snake. I know most of you are saying, who would want to in the first place? But the question was rather theological, not just taste. A snake, for many of them, like symbolized what, what a lot of those families uh, were involved with in terms of their worship and their ancestry and that. And a lot of it come out of that. And they just said, I don't think we should have any part of that. And others were going, yeah, but we know that there's nothing there. And I'm literally, Paul, you were there. We're sitting in the Sunday school class going, is this the book of Acts? What happened? How did we step out of Stillwater into the book of Acts? And honestly, this question that we have is still a big deal in so many parts of the world. Not that long ago, I was in Thailand, and they were asking questions years ago. In the 1800s, when the missionaries came, they asked us to leave all of our traditions behind, all of our rituals, all of our customs behind, and now we're dressed different, and now we're acting different, and we've lost so much of our heritage Can we go back and sing some of those family songs? Can we go back and kind of have some of those traditions, some of those celebrations? And and the churches that I were working with were really wrestling with this very complicated question. And there were Christians that were standing up and saying, well, we all know that there's only one God. Does it matter how we dress? And the others are going, but you don't understand. That dress is associated with a whole way of living that recognizes a whole demonic world. And we can't have any part of this. And again, I'm thinking... This issue is not dead. How do we understand that there is this knowledge? And and, and is that it? Should I just stand up and say, hey, everybody, here's the truth. That snake God doesn't exist. Do what you want. See, sometimes those of us that have insight, that have great insight, just kind of think, I don't understand why everybody's not on the same page as me. See, it's that attitude right there that's the problem. It's that attitude there, right there. I don't understand why you don't get it. See, that's what the Apostle Paul is about to address. My wife has actually taught me this very well. My wife likes to say to me on a regular basis, I don't know if it's true or not, this is her speaking, Jim, just because you're more articulate than me does not make you right. Just because you get so passionate and so excited and so verbose does not make you right. And I would even add to that, and actually being right isn't all that matters. Even if I am, even if I am, it's really not all that matters. Because look at what the Apostle Paul does in verse 7. He adds a whole layer of dimension to this that we forget. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are other people in this room this morning. Have you noticed? Have you got a sense of the other people in this room? No, I know, I'm not going, yeah, well, I know my kids are here because I brought them. No, I'm going like, how aware are you of this room? By the way, you do know that there was a service earlier today, right? There was a service earlier today with a whole bunch of brothers and sisters of this family that came together. Were you aware of that? Or or can you be like me and just kind of come in, do your thing, and leave? See, the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, listen to what he says here. He comes under this basic idea. See, not everybody has this knowledge. This knowledge that we have, this understanding that we have of the world, this reality that we have, not everybody has it. Well, I think they should get it. 
I think somebody should tell them. I think they should just grow up. You know what? I don't, that is not my, that is not, am I my brother's, and by the way, the answer to that question is almost always yes. Am I my sister's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for others? All the answers, biblically speaking, to those are yes, 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 and yes. Now, now how? We gotta work that out, but it's very interesting. The apostle Paul says in verse seven, however, so we get the truth. I, I'm glad you're telling me the truth. To ignore the truth would be wrong. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food, and what he's meaning here, as though it really is being offered to an idol, like they're not there yet. They're still trapped in that old way of living and that old way of thinking. They are still trapped by their conscience and being weak. Their conscience being weak is defiled. He says in verse eight, he goes back to the truth. Now, food will not commend us to God. Meaning, what you eat is not going to make you more spiritual. We know that. So the Apostle Paul, again, kind of underlining truth. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. I just want you to just stop for a moment and ask, are you aware of anyone else in the room? That's convicting. See, Jeff got up here and he had us pray. And he said, and what I want you to do is I want you to pray. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you like an area of your life where you are in some ways knowledgeable or knowing or unknowing, like somehow you're, you're hurting somebody that else is around you. And I'm, I'm sitting back here, both services, sitting back here and I'm praying. And, and my thought was, I'm trying to pray that prayer, to be honest with you, brother. I'm trying to pray that prayer and I'm, I'm almost, before I can even get to that one, I got to admit, I don't really think about this very much. I just, I don't know, I don't even know if I get there. Like, I got a better idea. Instead of asking the Holy Spirit to convict me, why don't you bring him in and I'll explain him the truth. We'll get him up to speed so I can get on with my life. All you people out there that are weaker and don't get it. Well, we're gonna have a class. It'll be at two o'clock and I'll let you know where you're dumb. And then you'll get on the same page as me and then we can get on with my life. What? See, what the Apostle Paul does is he causes me to just not just stop and ask, how can I be careful to make sure nobody else stumbles? No, before we even get to that, what he's actually asking is, are you aware that there's anybody else in your family? See, it's hard enough for me to know where I'm at on that weak or strong and now the Apostle Paul is going, and are you aware of like other people and how they are weak or strong? Are you serious? This is getting so complicated. See, now you know why it is so much easier for us to just go off and to try to manage our spiritual lives just kind of on their own. Because I mean, there is way too many moving parts to that. I'm not interested in it. That's why I don't wanna be in a life group. You wonder why I don't want to be in a life group? I don't want to be in a life group because I can't manage that many relationships. I'm having a hard enough time with my own. And the Apostle Paul says, I just need you to be aware. I need you to, I need you to listen to this. Not everybody knows what you know. Not everybody's on the same page as you. See, what's so fascinating in our culture right now is it just con con it continues to just splinter apart. 
is that what every one of us are doing, and this is why the church has to stand up and say, but we're not going to be this way, is we surround ourselves with people who think like us and act like us and behave like us, and we begin to separate ourselves. Now, by the way, there are other issues that come into play. I'm not talking about failure to recognize and discern um, sinful behavior versus, but I'm talking about if we become this isolated community that just shuts off other people that don't think like us and don't act like us, then how are we going to be salt and light? How are we going to ever mature and become the body of Christ that God wants us to be? How are we ever going to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control? How are we ever going to grow in that if our answer is, I don't know why they don't get it? Apostle Paul says, no, I I need you to do the hard stuff. If a relationship gets difficult, I need you to stay with it. See, you know where we get that? We really get that, interestingly enough. We really get that with the ones we love. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but that's where we really get it. Like, I find out some teachers being too hard on my kid. I, I I love, I love, and I respect all of you that are especially the ones that have to deal with the complexities of children nowadays, right? I'm so grateful for what you do. But, but it, it, there have been times where I want to say, listen, like, I get it. I get it that he's causing lots of problems. We're having some same issues at home. I just need you to understand where he's coming from. I need you to know what's going on in his life. Please, 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 will you show him a kind of care and a kind of concern? Because let me explain to you the backdrop. Let me explain to you. What I'm really saying is, I just love him. I'm not asking for a pass. I'm really not. I just, I want you, as you teach him and discipline him, I just want you to know how he got where he got. And I'm, I want, will you love him? That's what I want. And I honestly think that's what God says to us. But 1 Corinthians screams to us is that every single one of us has a heavenly father and a story. None of us are gonna get a pass. God is going to perfectly judge and work through all of our junk. And I just want, I believe that this text wants, I believe that what God ultimately wants is for us to love and to treat one another like that. I'm not wanting to ignore the truth. There's no God but one. It doesn't matter if you eat or don't eat. All of those truths, doesn't matter if you play cards or don't play cards. It really doesn't matter, okay? We get that. Tell me you're going to care about those people that are struggling. Tell me you're not just going to dismiss them. Paul ends with this powerful statement in verse nine. It's a very interesting phrase. It says in verse nine, but take care. The word there for care is just the word in the Greek meaning to see. It's a very simple word, blepo. To see, like I see something. I blepo you, I see you. But it means more than that actually. It can also mean To see that you do something literally means, like, I need you to discern. Like, I want you to discern. I want you to, when you look at others, when you look at yourself, take care. That's why they have that that take care. It's not just see that. It means with this intent and with this discernment that this right of yours, discern that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, 
Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Meaning, will he not just blow through what he's not comfortable in doing and just do it because he saw you do it? And so by your knowledge and by your lack of love for a brother or sister, he's insinuating, this weak person becomes destroyed, the brother of whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you actually sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. What Paul is talking there is... um, a, a better knowledge, a, a better understanding, not just of what is right or wrong. Paul loves to use this kind of language. I don't just want to ask what we can do. I want to ask what we should do. I just don't want to ask what is permissible and what I have the freedom to do. I want to ask, like as a loving person who is part of a family, do you care at all about those that are struggling, that are behind? See, there's two ways to deal with an issue. One is with all of you, with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind, with all of your strength to give yourself over to that completely. And the other one is to just kind of, well, the answer is, the Apostle Paul says that the Christian response never ignores the truth, but never also just isolates the truth. And I would argue it doesn't balance it It integrates it. Brother or sister, I know the way that you look at this aspect of your life. It's it's not right and it's not accurate. And by the way, I love you so much. I'm here to help you see that truth and I never want to be the one to cause a problem in your relationship with God. Ever. Like no matter what. Like, you mean more to me than my freedom. You mean more to me than the opportunities that I'm going to have. Now, sadly enough, weirdly enough, that in our culture, this is almost always used to describe literally some of the things that you mentioned, Jeff. Cards on Sunday, um, eating at a place other than Chick-fil-A on Sunday, because you can't eat Chick-fil-A on Sunday. Um, uh, Drinking, alcohol is a big one. Can I tell you that although there are some similarities in that, The kind of stumbling that is being described here is not the kind of stumbling like, ooh, I just made a mistake. It's the kind of stumbling in the context of worship that is setting people in a tragically different direction. It's not just a sinful stumble. It's a direction of worship stumble. So it's not easy for us to kind of navigate this text. Like what it's really going to demand is that you and I spend the time to get to know one another and to love one another, to be comfortable with the fact that, yep, I'm weak and you're strong and I'm grateful for your love. Yep, I'm strong and you're weak and I want you to know that I love you. It really allows us to have conversations where the truth is surely the foundation of what we build our lives upon, but love is the ethic. The same love that God showed to us in Jesus as we live our everyday lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your truth. We thank you for the fact that you've not only given us the truth, but you have done so by demonstrating that you needed to die in our place, that Jesus did not consider equality with you as something to just hold on to, 
but he emptied himself. He gave of himself. And therefore, as we have conversations about truth, may we not be like the world where we isolate ourselves with people who agree with what we already know and it just becomes a mutual nod and recognition fest. God, may we dare to move across the street or across the aisle. May we know each other well enough that we are caring for the spiritual growth and development of our brothers and sisters. God, this is what it means to be family. And I pray that we would know that that's what it means to be Christian. Jesus did this perfectly, and so we thank you for his example. And we thank you for the spirit that gives us the strength and the discernment. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. And all God's people said,